I want to begin while you're turning to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. <clears throat> I want to begin by uh, thanking you for the opportunity to have this part in the life of your church. And I have no idea who would have been here in this church from, uh, I'm not going to ask anybody to raise their hand, but if you were here in 1969 or 70, uh, I was, uh, my wife and I were graduates from seminary at that time and entered, uh, entered the ministry in the uh, uh, association with an organization called Men in Action. It was, it's now, I think, called Ministries in Action, even if, it's, if it still even exists. I'm not sure it does. But I, I served with them for about a year and a half under the leadership of Terry Geiger, who became the Mission to North America coordinator for our denomination for a number of years. And your church supported Diane and me during that period for several years in that, uh, in that ministry. It was when Bob Dews was pastor of the congregation here. So thank you again for that part uh, that you had in our lives and in the lives of churches in various parts of this country. Without uh, taking further time, which I don't want to uh, spend on too much personal things from my perspective, <clears throat> would you listen and follow carefully as we read the first two verses of Hebrews 12. Therefore, that's referring to chapter 11, therefore, thinking about all of those heroes of the faith that were faithful in spite of all kinds of turmoil and complication that flooded their lives. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. <clears throat> a couple of other verses just for reinforcing that. You don't have to turn here. This is Colossians 1.18. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And in Matthew 6.33, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. How do you go about seeking the kingdom of God? By taking care of the church. The church is not the kingdom. It's the agency of the kingdom. And it is, it is commissioned by the Lord to bring the kingdom in under the leading and empowering of the Lord himself. And so what we do in, uh, in this weekend together is remind ourselves of the need for churches to be healthy in the Lord Jesus Christ according to his word. Now I want to speak to you today and as, uh, as the final one of the presentations, this will be number six of uh, some. We did uh, four yesterday. We did one this morning in Sunday school. And now we finish up with a title called the power, the power, in fact, I would even add this to it, the entangling power of personal preference. I'll say a little bit more about that title and why I added the word in just a few moments. I would uh, encourage you, if you were not uh, able to be with us yesterday, that you find a copy of the handout that was given yesterday and just glance through it 
and you'll be able to see where what we're going to talk about this morning fits into what we did yesterday and this morning in Sunday School. This is something of a series, and there are two other parts that uh, maybe I'll be able to horn my way back in at some point in the future and uh, provide those for you as well. Uh, here, once again, the, the second verse of Hebrews 12. No, the first verse. Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We want to focus on that entangling sin. And I'll identify it more specifically in just a few moments, but I want now to to uh, give you a quotation. I want to give you a quote that will start with a question. And I hope this question will grab your attention because the way you would answer this is very, very important. Here's the question with the quote following. Can you predictably, clearly, and consistently distinguish the difference between what you want and what God wants? The quote continues, our knee-jerk, our automatic answer is likely to be, yes, I believe I can. However, the honest investigation would show that the answer should more than likely be no. Why? Well, this is because we don't naturally and intentionally invest in discerning the difference between, what, between his will and our personal preferences. We subconsciously protect, promote, and defend our personal preferences. We don't know we're doing that, but we do it. And there are times we do know we're doing it, and we get real dogmatic about it on those occasions. But here again, we draw conclusions and establish actions more by the motivation of our personal preference than we even realize or are comfortable admitting. In fact, it's not very unusual for our personal preference to override objective consideration of documentable truth in the human decision-making process. Our default reaction is to uh, our default reaction to whatever competes with our personal preference is to discount that competitive element by putting it in the back of our mind, tabling its consideration indefinitely. Well, why is this? The quote finishes in this way. It's because our personal preference is one of the strongest drives and one of the most subtle influences of our entire being. Now you've just been introduced with that quotation to the power of personal preference. And I add the, in the title, I add the word entangling, the entangling power of our personal preference. Now let's say a word as to what that... Uh, what that entanglement is. <clears throat> you read again in the, in the first verse of Hebrews 12, let us lay aside every encumbrance. There are two th this is a race. This is the, the atmosphere and, and picture of a race. And the person who's reading this, I mean, it's for, it's for spiritual instruction. It's not talking about literal racing. It's talking about the race of life. It's talking about what's before us and the, the encumbrances that will get in the way of our following through with the race that we have in following Christ and living to honor and praise him. It says, set aside every encumbrance. Now, what's that referring to is dress as lightly as possible and still be decent. 
so that the flapping of robes or the flapping of pant legs or the flapping of whatever might not be in the way of free movement in the running of the race. But then the second thing is where we want to give our attention here. And he says, not only set aside every encumbrance, but the sin which so easily entangles us. There's been some question over the years or there's been some diversity of opinion as to what that sin would be. It falls basically into two categories. The first of which I used to believe, the second of which I now believe because of some further study and recognizing that I had it wrong to begin with. <clears throat> the first one was, uh, was that uh, the entangling sin of every Christian would be that weakest point in a person's relationship with Christ where if Satan couldn't get to us anywhere else, he knew he had that opportunity and could always entangle us at that point. I think there's still some, some merit to that, but it's not the, it's not the real idea. And the, the, thing that has, the thing that has changed my uh, evaluation of this as to what it is, is the strength of the definite article. And it's not in all of the English translations. It is in the original language by strong inference. And what it's referring to is the sin into which we are born. It's, we call it, theologically speaking, we call it original sin, or we're born sinners. Let me say a little bit more about this so that we'll know uh, why with this personal preference uh, is the best uh, manifestation, not the best, but it is the most obvious manifestation, the most obvious manifestation of our original condition into which we're born. What happened in the Garden of Eden? <clears throat> in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve ate of that forbidden fruit, uh, they lost any and all affection for God. Nobody can have the kind of affection for him that he wants us to have until the Holy Spirit comes then and begins to make us know what we're really like and points us to Christ in whom we must place our belief and trust asking him to be our forgiver and savior and ruler. And as we then progress in the process of spiritual growth and development, the process of sanctification, uh, we will understand more and more, we will, we will make more and more progress in our love for Christ and our following after him. It's not a smooth thing. It's not a progressive upward direction. It'll have hitches in it. It'll have backslidings in it. It'll have all kinds of ups and downs and backs and forths in it. But in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve fell into that sin, they lost their affection for God. And uh, we are born without an affection for the Lord. Now, we can talk about him. We can uh, have some opinions about him. We can even read the Bible about him. But it doesn't do us any good in the salvation sense until the Holy Spirit turns on the light of our mind and heart and gives us the ability and the commitment to understand and know and follow Jesus Christ as our Savior. So this entangling sin that is being referred to in this first verse of Hebrews 12 is original sin. Now, what's the nature of that original sin? It is self-centeredness, self-preoccupation, as opposed to God-centeredness and a preoccupation, a worshipful preoccupation with him. 
A number of years ago, my niece, who some of you know uh, from previous connections in different parts of the state, this is the second daughter of my, my sister, Marietta Harper. Uh, Marietta was riding along in the car one day, and her second daughter uh, asked her a question. The daughter was about, I guess, nine years old, something like that, maybe a little younger. I uh, said, Mama, what is sin? And my sister thought to herself, oh boy, here's a teaching moment. So she starts trying to put into that age language uh, an answer to that question. And in about 30 seconds or so, uh, her daughter stops and says, Oh, Mama, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. My sister forgot that, the, that uh, Becky had been taking catechism training and that that was, uh, that was the definition, that's the best definition, one of the most classic definitions of sin. And there's no way to find fault with that definition at all. But to bring it into the vernacular, to bring it into street communication, day-to-day communication, here's what sin is. It is self-preoccupation as opposed to worshipful preoccupation with the Lord. And that is the entangling power that is being warned against in this first verse. The sin which so easily entangles. And it's what I was reading this quote about a few minutes ago when I said, are you able always to distinguish the difference between what God wants and what you want? And left to ourselves, just left to ourselves, even in the context of the Christian life, we have the ability, but we don't always use that ability. In fact, we use the ability probably less than we than we uh, do use it. Why? Because the nature of sin still remains in us, not that we are not that we're condemned by God because of our sin if we know Jesus. But the sanctification process is something that takes the rest of our life. And we are we we carry the we carry the smell, we carry the effects of this self-centeredness, this self-preoccupation for the rest of our lives. Had a seminary professor that was also a professor at the college where I attended at Bellhaven College in Jackson named Morton Smith. He, he said in college and he said in seminary, he said uh, Christian life's kind of like uh, the killing of a skunk where sin is concerned. says you can kill the skunk but the smell lingers on. What he's referring to is the nature of sin And the fact that there's always a residue, there's always something that gets in the way of our just unhindered progress and sanctification. What is it? It's self-centeredness. It's self-preoccupation. It is the power, the power of our personal preferences that that are sneaky in many cases and obvious in other cases. Well, non-Christians are bound by this. Christians are not bound by it. Let me tell you the difference. When I say non-Christians are bound by this personal preference, this, uh, this power of original sin into which we're born, uh, look with me as I shared with the group yesterday. Look with me uh, in your mind for a moment at uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 2.14. 
Uh, here is the biblical description of our huge dilemma. The natural man, that is the, the pre-converted individual before Christ comes into the life. The natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. Oh, he can talk about them, he can make some conversations about them, but he doesn't really get it. The natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. Neither can he understand them. Why? Because they are spiritually understood. In other words, understood by the illumining, waking up power of the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. So that's the reason I say non-believers are bound by this entangling power of personal preference. And uh, it, it just creates havoc and all, all I've got to do is say that, and you can just think of case after case after case where that would be borne out in human function and activity. But it also follows us, like the smell of a dead skunk, follows us, pardon the, pardon the, uh, the reminder of that, but uh, it follows us into our relationship with the Lord. And to the, to the latest day that we live, to the last day we live, we will still be overcoming some of this self-centeredness. And the power of our personal preference is more than enormous. Let's look at it for a little bit and see how that's true and how we can respond to it. Romans 6, 11 uh, says, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of righteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who, as those who are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For, and here's the point, sin shall no longer have mastery over you. Sin shall no longer dominate or be in irrevocable control in your life. Uh, you know what that's referring to? It's referring to a theological term that we, that we know as redemption. And we covered this in some of our meeting yesterday. Uh, what is redemption? Redemption is not referring, it's not referring to the general idea of conversion. Uh, redemption is referring to a very specific part of what Jesus did on the cross. And here's what it was. His redeeming work was that he, by his death and shedding of his blood, he paid the ransom to deliver us as his own people out from under the dominant bondage to sin. And that's the reason in Romans 6 you have what I just read a few minutes ago where it says that sin shall no longer, talking to Christians, sin shall no longer dominate you unless you let it. That's the implied activity in that passage. So why do Christians, why do Christians still have so much trouble with the power of personal preference? And why will it be a part of our dilemma from now until we die? Well, here's part of the answer. Christians generally do not capitalize on the liberty that we have in Christ to the degree that we could because we are not knowledgeable of the realities and the sneakiness of the power of personal preference. Here's what happens. The power of personal preference skews our objectivity in everything, even in our interpretation of the Scripture. Our preferences, our preferences can become so powerful, can become so motivating to us, and we can want what we want with such a want 
that we, we lose objectivity. We're not able or we allow ourselves not to be able to think sensibly or wisely. All we know is that we want. It can be something big or it can be something little, but we're just driven to it. And left to ourselves, we will not take advantage of the liberty out from under the dominance and bondage and power of sin that is actually available to us. You know, in Philippians 4.13, it says, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. While it's true that a non-Christian is under the bondage, we who belong to Christ are not under that bondage any longer. And when we give in to the power of our preferences, we didn't have to. But we decided, because the appetite was so strong and great, we decided to give in anyhow. It's important to know that what Christ did in the redeeming work on the cross, he delivered us from having to sin. Non-believers have no choice. Now, it's not that sin is the only thing they ever do in their life as far as specific actions are concerned. They can be, in many, many, many cases, admirable people, maybe even moral people. But they're not converted people. And they don't have the liberty to turn down things that would separate them from Christ, i.e., they turn down Christ. We haven't turned down Christ if we've come to him and repented of our sin and asked him to be our Savior. But there are plenty of occasions, more than we would be, well, we'd be embarrassed to admit how frequently we, have to, we do this, but we have episode after episode after episode where this entangling thing keeps getting us. This entangling thing called personal preference, it gets us. And our preference is so strong, so powerful, so sneaky, so successful, that it wins far, far, far more, far more than it should. Let me read to you from Matthew 10. This will be something, an illustration that uh, what I read a minute ago where it says that the preference uh, skews our objectivity in everything, even the interpretation of Scripture. <clears throat> Matthew 10, we read, Whoever loves father or mother more than me, this is Christ talking, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life, in other words, does what he wants to, follows his own preference. Whoever finds his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life, that is, gives up his own preferences in order to honor the Lord. Whoever loses his life for my sake will actually find it. And then the statement is, uh, the explaining statement to that is, Jesus uses the most important human relationships to point out that even in them, it's more important to be surrendered to him than to follow our preferences. Let me give you an example of where this can come up. And it's not one that comes up a lot because this occasion doesn't come up a lot where the general uh, flow of life is concerned. But let's say that you have a child or a person who is uh, in the decision-making part of life where he's going to try to figure out what he's supposed to be and do and what he's, and let's say this person's a Christian, let's say uh, you're a Christian and this child comes to you and they say, I believe, I believe sincerely that God has called me to be a missionary in some dark part of the world and what is your first response to that? Now unless you're an awfully strong mature Christian, some people would say, well praise the Lord. He has you, and he's going to put you where he wants you. 
But I, I know for a fact that on many, many, many occasions, the response of parents, the response of grandparents, the response of aunts and uncles would be something like this, a rationalized sense. Aren't there enough unsaved people here that you could minister to? Yeah, there are. But that isn't where he's called me. He's called me to over there. And it's hard for us to accept that. What's going on? It's not that we're doing an honest evaluation of whether the need is greater here or the need is greater over there. No, the real evaluation brings to light. We just don't want to lose them. We don't want to lose them out of our sight and out of our influence and out of our fellowship. We want to keep them where we can enjoy them. Look again. The personal preference skews our objectivity in everything, even the interpretation of Scripture. So that Jesus uses this important human relationship to point out that even in them, it's more important to be surrendered to him than it is to follow our own preferences. I've done a, I've done a, a low-key, uh, not real professional study of uh, human thinking processes uh, don't, ask, don't ask me for the book. I never have written one and won't write one. But uh, uh, here's, what, here's what over a number of decades I've come to realize. We have something in our thinking process called willingness gates and consideration gates. And nothing can really be considered until the willingness gate is opened. And whether or not we open that willingness gate depends on the power of our personal preference. And we, we have the ability to make a decision so quickly against following through on something that we ought to follow through on. We, we make that decision so quickly, we don't even know we've made a decision. We just change the subject in our minds and it's done. What is that? It's the entangling power of personal preference. Well, uh, if you close the willingness gate that quickly, what you've done is you've decided to reject any teachable consideration of what the Lord wants. Well, I'll come back to this in a closing quote in just a few moments, but let's, let's see what some manifestations are. That's the issue. I've described the issue for you. Let's look at some manifestations of this and see how that might help us in our thinking about it. Uh, I've, got a number of, I've got a number of things listed here. I'll pick a couple of them. Uh, let's, let's see. Let's just go back to Adam and Eve. Let's just start with them. What was going on there? Uh, well, Satan was pretty sneaky himself, and he asked, them to, he asked them to think again about whether or not God had really said what God had said, but Satan wanted them to think maybe he hadn't said it, and maybe they had misunderstood, and he won. But now their curiosity had been alerted, and curiosity and curiosity can become preference and it can gain in power and that's what happened curiosity killed more than the cat curiosity about what that would really be like to eat that and find out what the what the reality was about it it it, it killed spiritual health and vitality in people so that what we inherit in this original sin came directly over the many generations and centuries and millennia from Adam and Eve themselves. 
That's, that's what happened. Now, <clears throat> the preference got the best. The curiosity turned to preference. The preference skewed objectivity, and the objectivity went away, and whatever that fruit was was tasted, and the rest is history. And that's been happening over and over and over and over and over, and I obviously don't have enough time to say the number of overs from then till now. Or let's look at someone else. Let, let's, look at, uh, let's look at King David. Now, King David was a man who is talked about as uh, after God's own heart. But he was overcome by the power of personal preference on any number of occasions. And, and the biggie that stands out to us in history is his uh, immoral relationship with the one... Uh, that he had that relationship with. What was that? That was him knowing that he had this relationship with God. This is inside a relationship with the Lord. And it, it, was, such, it was such a crushing thing that he did. And it was dealt with in such a, a, a powerful disciplinary way uh, before the Lord that he had to live with that he had to live with that the rest of his life. He was forgiven for it. But it, the scar tissue of it stayed with him the rest of his life. You see, here's, here's a reality about the power of personal preference and what can happen. God forgives us when we truly repent. But are you aware of the fact that he won't always remove the scar tissue? It's sort of like this. If somebody tells a child, don't put your hand on that burner, it'll hurt you. He wants to know if that's true. So, and he finds out. And if he holds it on there long enough by mistake, he's going to have scars that stay with him for a long time. That's true in spiritual matters as well. God will forgive us for, for uh, moral unfaithfulness, but the scar tissues of that, the broken relationships, the hindrances that are so, so ongoing and ongoing... They stay there a long time. And in, in some cases, they never go away. That's what happened with David. I referred in Sunday school to the period in history called the Dark Ages. The Dark Ages were the result of people tampering with the Scripture. Now, there were a number of other historic uh, parts that contributed to that, uh, parts of history that contributed to the Dark Ages. But I think one of the most influential parts that resulted in the Dark Ages was tampering the Scripture by uh, church leaders in that period of time so that not only did they not tell the whole truth to all the people all the time, they actually withheld the scripture in its readable form, didn't teach the people to read it, withheld it in readable form so that the people had, they had no idea what the reality was about how to know God and how to belong to him, how to live for him and enjoy him. Well, those are some of the manifestations. Let me, let me close with this. And I want this to be very personal. I, most of you in here, I don't know your names. But I want you to forget for a moment that there's anybody else in here besides you. And I want you to listen very carefully to this question. And I, but it doesn't matter that I want you to, God says you must answer this question. Here's the question. 
What are the sneaky preferences which, if undealt with, on a Psalm 139 basis. What do we mean by that? Psalm 139, the last two verses. Search me, O God, know my heart. Try me, know my anxious thoughts. See what wicked way is in me. See what wrong preferences are influencing my life. Make me aware of these things and lead me in the everlasting way. Now listen again to the question. What are the sneaky preferences which, if undealt with, on a Psalm 139 basis, will do several things. Poison your attitude, corrupt your appetites, leaving you neutral toward the Lord himself, and toward his people, toward the church even, centered on yourself, paralyzed in your personal sanctification, and contributing to paralysis in the corporate sanctification within the church as a local body itself. Another way to ask the same question is, what is the health of your sanctifying intimacy with Christ? You begin to get an inkling of this monster, the personal preference, how sneaky it can be and how much of a part it plays, even in the lives of Christians, even though we don't, we're not bound by it, we still let it in. Because it's subtle. It's sneaky. I've used that term now about that word, I don't know, several times, on purpose. So we've got to be aware of that. And we've got to look at that question that we started with earlier on and say, well, it may not be that I'm so clear in what God wants and what I want in every single instance. What's the solution? We close with this. What is the solution? Intimacy with Christ. Functional, prepared, practiced intimacy with Christ. Living in an attitude of communication with him in prayer. Living in set-aside times of waiting before him in prayer. Living before him with the preparation of periods where we slow down and we're still before him and we ask him to give us understanding of his word and we unhurriedly, meditatively, worshipfully commune with him and we ask him to fill and saturate our minds and our wills and our lives with intimacy with himself. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we ask you to grant your blessing so that we'll understand this power of this, this matter that we've been talking about that comes uh, as a warning to us in this first uh, verse of the 12th chapter of Hebrews. We pray that you'll help us to set aside that, that sin which so easily entangles, that is our self-preoccupation and our appetites uh, that we uh, are committed to satisfying even though it will be uh, dangerous and in some cases damaging and in some cases very, very damaging. And so we pray now that you will give to each person the resolve to come before you either now or at some point today or at some point in the very, very near future and pray the prayer from Psalm 139. Search me, O God, know my heart. Show me to myself. Lead me 
in the way everlasting as I confess and repent and look to you for intimacy with you, love for you, intimacy with you. In Jesus' name, amen.